Wednesday and Friday night services, you know, sometimes we fail to realize that just about everything that happens here is a team effort. And I appreciate those who Sunday morning moved chairs. It made the setup a lot easier for us. Uh, you know, Hallett and Ginger on Thursday and Hallett and Ginger and Abigail on Friday night with the music. I said to them, it's absolutely true. If we had hired the most expensive musicians in the nation, they couldn't have done any better than these three. <laughs> and uh, one glitch on Thursday night when I couldn't hear the guitar and started off in a strange key, and yet I thank all of you for enduring it. <laughs> we also thank Steve and Jerry for handling the sound booth. You know, so often we don't think about those men up there, and... Uh, if they do a bad job, whoever's up here isn't going to do a good job. So we thank the sound, sound booth for just the way they always, behind the scenes, are, are serving. Thank uh, Bill for all the work he did preparing the PowerPoints, Nicholas for uh, displaying them on Friday evening. And, you know, we have a group of folks move the chairs and do all of that. But guess who has to put it all back together? <laughs> the McIndarker family. <laughs> So we, we, we thank the McIntyre. But you know, I'll have to say something, too, about you. When you're up here leading singing and the congregation is singing, you have no idea what a wonderful sound it is to hear the voices coming back this way. It's, it, there's something that is just glorious, the way that we experience Kononia when we weave our voices together and sing as one. Some time ago, not very long ago, I was in a church service in which wonderful people, but you know what? I had to put my fingers in my ears, not because of the congregation, because of what was happening up here. I mean, it was blasted so loud, it hurt my ears, I couldn't hear myself sing. And sometimes, you know, that's something if I can't hear myself sing. And, and I couldn't hear anybody. There was no way the congregation could enjoy the fellowship of singing together. I appreciate our worship team and that their goal is to assist us to sing together rather than watch them perform. And that, that's just a beautiful thing to see the spirit uh, in the musicians that are here. God has been very good to us. On Thursday night, the cross was empty because it was awaiting our Lord Jesus. On Friday, it was draped in black. Because the King of the Universe, our Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God, had just a few hours before died upon that cross. Today our cross is draped in purple, symbolizing the royalty that had hung upon that cross, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Praise be His name. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. 
after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as it were, one born out of time, to me also. In the early days, in the earliest years of the church, there were no New Testament scriptures. The first portion of the New Testament that was written was either 1 Thessalonians or Galatians, one of Paul's letters. Most think 1 Thessalonians was the first one written. The first of the Gospels to be written, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first three, were written between uh, 50 A.D. and 70 A.D. The last Gospel, the Gospel of John, was written between 95 and 100 A.D. And so prior to the time that Scripture was composed, the church had oral sayings that they spoke to one another to affirm the basics of the faith. These things were called the rule of faith. And they usually were a paradigm that very simply expressed some aspect of our belief. One of these is found in this passage as Paul recited it. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. That was one of these rules of faith that was recited orally by the church. Christians greeted each other by these things. They recited them at times in the service. And Paul said, you know, I received that from others. I'm passing it on. Now we know that Paul did not mean that he received these facts from others because he tells us in Galatians that the gospel that he preaches he did not receive from men, but he received it from Christ Jesus himself. After his conversion, it seems the Lord took Paul aside for a season and Christ Jesus himself, the resurrected, glorified Lord, imparted to Paul the gospel that he preached. So what he is saying here is this. Here is this oral confession. Here is this creed that I received from others and I pass it on to you. And this is what we say to each other as we greet each other in our churches. This is a rule of faith. And that's what Paul means when he says this. Now, this creed was being used very, very early in the church. Probably within two years after the ascension of our Lord. There is a Oxford University classical scholar by the name of A.N. Sherwin-White. Do you ever notice how many British scholars have hyphenated names? Sherwin-White. Anyway, A.N. Sherwin-White, this uh, Oxford scholar, was doing a study of ancient cultures, and one thing that especially interested him had to do with the legends that arose in ancient cultures. And so part of his research was this, to try to determine how long it took for traditions and legends to begin to arise concerning a particular historical event. How long did it take for stories to start to be told about that and those stories to become elaborated upon and exaggerated upon till finally the actual truth no longer was told but only the legends. And he said in his research he determined it took more than two generations 
for such a legend to develop and for the legend to wipe out the solid core of historical truth. Now consider that. At least two generations before the actual facts no longer were known and all that existed happened to be the legends. But consider this creed probably developed within two years of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Not enough time passed for legends to develop. And so the creed states that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Not the result of legend, but the result of those who were eyewitnesses. You know, we have a lot of things today, a lot of people, a lot of uh, sources challenging the truthfulness of the accounts of the resurrection. And so this morning, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the certainty concerning the event that we call the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just for the sake of argument this morning, let's go where the secularist would go. And just for the sake of the argument, let's assume that the Holy Spirit had absolutely nothing to do with the writing of the four Gospels. Now, that's a false assumption. But let's just go ahead and make that assumption today to enter the arena as the secularist would want to enter it. First of all, how reliable are the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Let's consider them. Matthew was an eyewitness to everything that he wrote about. He first wrote his gospel in Aramaic, and then within a very short time, there was a Greek version. Possibly Matthew himself even produced the Greek version after his Aramaic version. There are many Aramaisms in the Matthew gospel that are not in the others. So he was an eyewitness. And so when he wrote about these things, he wrote about things that he had seen and experienced, not something someone else had told him. Mark was Peter's uh, amanuensis. Peter was a young man at the time of the uh, crucifixion, the resurrection. Later, you recall, he started to travel with his uncle Barnabas and Paul, and after a while, he didn't like the rigors of the road and went back home and Paul called him a quitter and said, I don't want him to travel with me anymore. Later on, when Paul was in prison, Mark had matured. Paul said, send him to me. Mark would be a great encouragement. But Mark was Peter's amanuensis, his secretary. And while Peter was in Rome, probably in prison, Mark was with him. And as Peter recited, Mark recorded. And so really the gospel of Mark properly could be called the gospel of Peter. Mark put it down, but Peter is the one who recited it. The earliest Christian sources report uh, that this is true. Luke was a Gentile physician. He was not a Jew. It's interesting, we don't know exactly when Luke came to Christ, but it happened sometime during Paul's journey, especially among the Galatian region. If you look in Acts 16, you'll notice in verse 8, Luke describes Paul and his company as they. Two verses later in verse 10, he says, we. (laughs) So someplace between verse 8 and verse 10 of Acts 16, when Paul was leaving Troas, Luke had joined them. So conversion had happened sometime 
during uh, Paul's travels among the Gentiles. So here was a Gentile physician who became a believer in Christ Jesus, who traveled extensively with Paul, heard his preaching, saw the miracles, at times ministered to him. When Paul was in prison, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, no one is with me except Luke the physician. Luke was caring for the aged Paul as he suffered in prison. During uh, uh, Luke's ministry then, he began to try to record everything that he heard about the life of Jesus. And he tells us, as he uh, opens his gospel, he said, you know, many people have written about these things, but I wanted to get it down accurately and in order. And so he interviewed people. He probably interviewed Mary. He could go to the temple and look at the genealogy. He could interview various ones who saw these different scenes. And as a dedicated researcher, he accurately and in order wrote all of these things down. Very precise, very precise in what he did. So here was a man who interviewed eyewitnesses and wrote down what the eyewitnesses told him. Now John, who wrote many, many years later, wrote by the time that some small legends had already started to arise. And out of these came things such as the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas that became the uh, Gnostic uh, library later in, in Egypt. And so when John wrote, he was aware of all of these delusional things in many cases that were starting to be taught about Jesus Christ. John, living in the Gentile city of Ephesus, which was at the head of the valley where Gnosticism really prevailed, wrote, therefore, a, 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 a record of the life of Jesus to refute the Greek philosophers. His gospel really is more Greek than anything else. Sometimes people say, well, you know, the Bible really is a Jewish document, only part of it. Most of the New Testament is not. Uh, Matthew would be, but most of it is not. So here you have uh, eyewitnesses who were there, or those who interviewed eyewitnesses. They were there. They had it very accurately uh, recorded within, at most, uh, 40 years after the, the, the things happened, except for John, of course, who wrote at the end of this century. So it seems that we have a very accurate record by those who were on the scene, who had no reason to lie. As a matter of fact, most of them laid down their lives because of what they said was true. So let's take a look at some of the certainties. What are some of the certainties that come out of this record? First of all is the certainty of the death of Jesus. Friday, Good Friday, we read the account from Mark concerning all of the things that Jesus endured. In some years we have with detail talked about all that happened physically to Jesus Christ on that night. And I suppose a great many of you saw the Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson film. If anyone has ever really looked at what Jesus physically went through on that night, it may be very difficult to deny the death of our Lord. Many died during the flogging that the Russian or the uh, Romans uh, imposed before uh, Russians maybe who knows they might do that too <laughs> uh, before uh, b before they were crucified and the crucifixion itself was a horrible experience 
Uh, Jesus did not bleed to death on the cross. Uh, he would, the, the people who died on the cross died of asphyxiation. The way they hung, they could not breathe unless they had to push up with their, with their legs. And that's why the feet were nailed to the cross, so they could push up. And sometimes a spike was put through the back of the cross, and the person who was on the cross would actually impale his buttocks on that spike, piercing his flesh, in order to be able some way to raise his chest so he could breathe. And the, the Romans did that deliberately so that death would take a long time. And finally, when a person reached the point that no longer could he push himself up to breathe, he died because no longer could he inspire and uh, exhale. Uh, he died because he couldn't breathe. And so a way to hasten death was to break the legs of those who were upon the cross. Now as Jesus and the two thieves hung upon the cross and it was coming the Sabbath time and it was wrong to have somebody hanging upon a tree, a crucified person hanging upon a cross on the Sabbath. And so as the Friday started getting closer and closer to the Sabbath, which began at sunset, the Jewish authorities went to the Romans and said, we have to get these people off the cross. So the Roman soldiers came to Jesus and the two thieves planning to kill them. And the way they would kill them would be to break their legs so they no longer could push themselves up and breathe and they would die. They broke the legs of the thief on the left and the thief on the right. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. To make certain, they thrust a spear into his right side, puncturing his right lung and piercing his heart to make sure that he was dead. Roman soldiers knew what dead people looked like. They were not people who were going to be deceived. They knew he was dead. The Jewish and Roman authorities both say he was crucified. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says Jesus was crucified and died on the orders of Pilate. Tacitus, the Roman historian, 115 A.D., wrote that Jesus was executed by Pilate. The Jewish Talmud even speaks of the death of Christ. There are other sources as well. Now there's one tale that's propagated by a false religion that says Jesus was not the one on the cross, it was really Judas. And somehow this uh, deception took place. And so naturally Jesus was seen walking around later, uh, two or three days later. Well now, that doesn't make any sense at all, you know. If, if, if they decide to crucify me and somehow Ed Harkins got on the cross, is anybody going to mistake, mistake Ed Harkins for me? Of course not. Uh, it, it's absurd to have such a foolish concept being taught. Jesus died. That is for certain. We can also declare the certainty of the security of the tomb. Remember after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a ruler of the Jews, who had become a disciple of Jesus, and Nicodemus, also a ruler of the Jews, who had become a disciple of Jesus, went to Pilate and said, May we have the body, and the body was given to them. Now Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, had his own tomb, and it was very near the place where Jesus was crucified. Here's what a tomb was like in those days. 
Uh, here you have a cave. Sometimes the cave was artificially hollowed out of, of the mountain, but some were very natural. And you had the open room, and in that open room there would be a stone slab where the body would be temporarily placed. And then around the edge of that open room there were loculi. Loculi would be um, uh, passages or, or niches cut out in the wall where the body would be slid in. You know, you see pictures sometimes in the picture show of the morgue and they slide the body out of a drawer. It was like that, only there was no drawer. They just shoved the body in. So that's what the tomb looked like. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus placed the body of Jesus on the stone slab and that's where they left the body. Everything had to be in a hurry because the Sabbath day was quickly dawning. The Romans making sure that it was secured. The Jews wanted to be sure it was that way. Roll this heavy stone in front of it. And then to make sure nobody artificially or nobody illegally opened it, they put a band across it, and on that was the seal of the Roman Empire. Anybody who broke that seal would be violating the law of Rome and would have been subject to prosecution. And then guards were placed in front of it as an added measure, just to be sure nobody came and stole the body. No one would have dared, and even if they would have dared, they could not have gotten into that tomb and stolen the body of our Lord Jesus. Now, one theory that was perpetrated around 1900 was that Jesus swooned upon the cross. And so they put his body in the tomb, and in the tomb, in that coolness of the tomb, he revived and came out of the swoon and somehow got out. Now, can you imagine what that'd be like if you were in a coma and they put you on a slab and you wake up in this dark place and have no idea where you are and how are you going to find a way out and you get to the place and how are you going to roll away this big stone? It's a bunch of baloney. It just uh, couldn't have happened that way. Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus, was securely placed in the tomb. The third thing that we can declare as certainty is the testimony of the many witnesses. Now, it's been a long time since we have, on a Sunday morning, on the Resurrection Day, gone through the sequence of events that happened. So let's do that this morning as we think about the various witnesses, the order of events, and what really happened uh, on that day. The home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany had been the headquarters of Jesus and his disciples every time they came to Jerusalem. And so after the crucifixion, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, eight of the disciples and others no doubt, left Jerusalem and went to Bethany where they holed up for the Sabbath day. And there they mourned, there they talked about everything that they had experienced. It was a challenging time for them. James and John, for some reason, did not go with them. But James and John uh, went to an apartment or an upper room on the west northwestern side uh, of the city of Jerusalem. Thomas, you remember, was just off alone. <laughs> he, uh, he was off alone, very, very much confused. And so, as the women and these others were in Bethany, and they began to grieve, and they were sorrowful over the fact that the body of our Lord had not been prepared properly for burial. The custom in that society was that when someone died, 
the women of the family washed the body. Then they anointed it with oil and spices and wrapped it in burial cloths, and then it was placed in the laculi. And so these women wanted to go to the tomb of Jesus and properly prepare his body for burial. Early in the morning, just before sunrise, then the group of women left Bethany, and this gaggle of women came to the uh, eastern side of Jerusalem. They traveled north outside the wall to the northwestern side where Golgotha was located and where the tomb was located. Now, they really hadn't thought ahead. As they were traveling along, they probably had the goods with them that they needed to anoint the body and wrap the body, but they started thinking, wait a minute, how are we going to get in? (laughs) Who is there going to be to roll away the stone? And, of course, there are those guards in the Roman seal. But as they were traveling, an earthquake took place. And Matthew tells us, Behold, a severe earthquake occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And the guard shook for fear and became like dead men. And we probably would have to if we had been there and had experienced that. Well, as soon as the soldiers kind of recovered from their swoon, they rushed back to the Jewish authorities and said, let me tell you what's happened. The authorities said, keep your mouth shut. They gave them a large sum of money, said, keep your mouth shut. We'll square things with Pilate. Because, you see, according to Roman law, they should have been executed. Any time a Roman soldier was given a charge of a prisoner or of, of anything like this, and he lost it, he paid with his life. And so they realized they were in trouble because they were losing their ability to contain this thing. And so the Jewish authorities said, we'll square it with Pilate. Take the money. Keep your mouth shut. Don't tell anybody unless you say his disciples came and stole the body, which didn't make any sense at all. Well, not long after the soldiers had left the tomb, the women approached. They were astonished. The stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And when they saw this, they stopped everyone except Mary. Mary bolted. She ran around the northwestern corner of the city wall, ran down to the Joppa Gate, entered Jerusalem by the Joppa Gate, came to the room where Peter and John were waiting and told them, He isn't there. (laughs) The tomb is empty. And Peter and John immediately bolted out of their apartment, rushed out of the Joppa Gate, and rushed up to Golgotha. Mary, by now worn out, couldn't keep up with them. When they got to the tomb, John, being younger, evidently got there first. He stooped down and looked in. While he was looking in, Peter stooped down and rushed right past him into the tomb itself, and they found it empty. They immediately left, planning to go to Bethany to join the others and talk about what's going on. Mary, however, had another experience. But remember the women now had left the tomb and they were traveling back to Bethany and they were going to tell the other disciples what had happened. 
Mary, looking in the tomb, pondering, her eyes filled with tears, saw two angels. Two angels now had returned, and they were sitting, one on either side of the stone slab. Why are you weeping, Mary? Then she became aware that there was someone standing slightly behind her. She turned. It was Jesus, but she didn't know it. Her eyes were filled with tears, somewhat blinded through her mourning. Jesus' appearance somewhat changed. Notice that almost everyone who first saw Jesus after his resurrection uh, what didn't recognize him at first. She did first didn't recognize him, and then he spoke. Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Tell me where you've taken his body. Let me have it. Jesus said one thing, Mary. And immediately she recognized the voice of our Lord and said, Rabbi. She began to worship him, but Jesus said, No, go tell the disciples that I have risen from the dead and I'm going to be ascending to my father. And so she immediately began the journey to Bethany where the apostles were waiting and the women hadn't gotten there yet. While they were traveling back to Bethany, suddenly Jesus appeared to them. And they fell at his feet and started to cling to him. And he said, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father in heaven. But go tell the disciples that I have risen from the dead, and I will meet them in Galilee. Well, when the women got to Bethany, they found the disciples, they told them everything that had happened. Not long after that, Peter and John came rushing into the room and told them what they had experienced. Shortly after that, Mary arrived. And you can just imagine the room was a buzz. We don't know when, but sometime later that day, Jesus appeared personally to Peter, and Peter had his own encounter with the Lord. Now, there were two men in the room. We don't really know who they were. They were disciples. And for reasons that we are not told, they found it necessary to leave and head for Emmaus, which was about seven and a half miles uh, west of Jerusalem. And so they left Bethany, passed the Mount of Olives, came to the gate, crossed through Jerusalem, went out the Joppa Gate, and then were traveling on the road to Emmaus, talking about everything that had happened. Suddenly, another traveler joined them. And what are you talking about? And he began to ask some questions. They said, where have you been? Been off on Mars somewhere? You don't know what's happened? Everybody's talking about this big event. And so as they traveled along, then Jesus began to explain to them about the prediction of the death and the burial and resurrection of the Messiah. They still didn't recognize him. And when they stopped to go in to eat, they said, come on and join us. And they sat down and began to preparing to eat, and Jesus prayed. Immediately they knew who he was, and he vanished from their midst. By now, the disciples had left Bethany, 
and they'd gone back into Jerusalem, and now we're in the upper room where Peter and John had spent the night. Thomas was not with them. And as they were there, the door locked for fear of the Jews, talking about all of these events, trying to understand them. Suddenly, Jesus appeared in their midst. And they thought, well, it must be a ghost, <laughs> some kind of a spirit. Jesus said, no, I'm not a spirit. I'm the resurrected Lord. You don't believe me. Look, here are the nail prints in my hand. Look at my feet. They have nail prints in Matter of fact, handle me, he said. And John, in 1 John chapter 1, writing about that, who's writing to those people who said Jesus physically did not come forth from the grave, John said, we handled him. And the Greek word there is the Greek word that is used for the way a blind person would feel a person's face and figures so they could get some idea as to how to recognize them the next time. That's the Greek word. They, they really identified who Jesus was on that particular occasion. And uh, they sat down with him and he ate a piece of broiled fish. You're looking at a resurrected body, not a spirit. Now that was the last of the appearances on the first resurrection day. One week later, they were gathered in that same room, the door still locked, and this time Thomas was with them. They had met Thomas, they told him about what happened, he said, I don't believe any of it. You know, that, that sort of thing just doesn't happen. But a week later, he was with them in the upper room, and again, Jesus appeared, and uh, he looked at Thomas. He said, Thomas, uh, put your finger in this hole. <laughs> put your finger in the wound in the side if you don't believe. And Thomas said, my Lord <laughs> and my God. There were many other appearances that took place during the next 40 days. But it's important to remember one thing Paul said in the passage that we read. He said at one time he appeared to more than 500 people at once and most of those people are still alive. If you don't believe it, you can ask them. Jesus came forth. Let me give a concluding thought. The crown of thorns is significant. The Greek word for crown describing the crown of thorns is the Greek word stephanos. Stephanos is not the word for the crown that royalty wears. That word is diadem. A king wears a diadem. But a stephanos refers to the laurel wreath that is given to the victor in some kind of an athletic competition. Run a fast race, you win, you get a laurel wreath on your head. A triathlon, you win, get a laurel wreath on your head. And so the crown of thorns is the stephanos of thorns. <laughs> It is the wreath of victory, in Jesus' case, made out of thorns. And you see, those who mocked him thought they were mocking him. But it wasn't so, was it? <laughs> it was the mark of victory. It was a victor's crown. Now, here's an interesting thing. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, 
we have a picture of Jesus reigning as the true victor. And the Greek word used for crown there is not Stephanos, but it is diadem. As a matter of fact, it says many diadems, many royal crowns he wears as the ultimate victory over history, over sin, and over evil. Our Lord came forth from the grave, and by that, Paul could write, Grave, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Ah, but thanks be to us who give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you cared enough about us to make a choice, to make a decision, even before the creation, to redeem us. But you made a choice at one point that it was time to send the Christ. And that the second member of the Godhead make it, made a choice to lay aside his divinity to come and dwell before us. We thank you for the many choices he made while he was here, each one of them leading him closer to Calvary. The choice he made in the garden in which John tells us that knowing all things that were set before him, he still went forth, O oh God. We thank you for those choices and we all know they're an expression of your love. And we thank you for the victory, that the victory can be ours by the power of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jim. Uh, let's stand together. Remind you that, uh, as is our custom on the last Sunday of the month, we do have a basket down here to receive a benevolence offering. Benevolence offering helps uh, not only those who come to the church for assistance, but it helps some of our own when they have some specific needs. And so we encourage you to uh, consider that. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we serve a risen Savior. We're grateful, Father, for the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Father, for this service that uh, pointed us to that great truth Lord, in our worship, in our prayers, and in the preaching of your word. We're grateful, Father, for these great truths that we remember this morning. And Father, may we leave this place rejoicing that we serve the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Father, for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're dismissed.